What's up, everybody? This is the Power Shift Media Podcast coming at you on a Sunday. This is Matt. This is Nathan. And I guess first thing is we apologize for like the three-week hiatus. There's just been a lot of stuff going on between... There was potential career changes and yes, stuff like that that fell through. However, it was definitely something that was a big change possibility that was going to go on with us, but nonetheless. Yep, we're still here, just we were trying to iron all that out, and obviously, you know, you've been kind of going through a lot with the, you know, customer cars. I got to make sure the display doesn't go off on that. I think it's just dimming, but Yeah. yeah, everything's been... A little bit on the crazy side, you know, between that going on and... It's still working. Yep, seems like it is. So I guess at about the 10-minute mark, we'll check again. I apologize, everybody. We do record this on my iPhone, and I usually have the display set to always on, but I forgot because (laughs) I use this thing truck driving. But ironically, you know, speaking of career changes, yeah, I go to nights tomorrow, so tonight's going to be a long night for me. But, yeah, you're still wrenching wrenching the customer yep, cars. definitely trying to get stuff caught up and being so far behind on one that was just breaking me as an individual and working on cars. It was nothing that I did um, on my own. However, it was something that um, the car came to me as a somewhat of a basket case. The guy bought it cheap, bought it off of a relative that I think bought it, tore it apart, somewhat partially put it back together, and as we found out, didn't know Jack about how to put it back together. Yeah, that car definitely <laughs> was a disgrace for what it was yeah. because... For everybody who's wondering, um, it was a 1.8 turbo Beetle, um, a five-speed car that even had a KO4 turbo upgrade, and it had a plethora of other little things, but it literally looked like somebody took it to a rally event because it had, like, three inches of mud inside of it. The front bumper, like, carrier was held on by a carriage bolt. Yeah, what (laughs) what had happened was apparently this particular person fell asleep and I'm air quoting that fell asleep at the wheel put it through a ditch sent it out into a field and while attempting to get it unstuck from the muddy field they supposedly burnt the clutch out of it so in the that point they tore it apart to replace it with a clutch and they did choose to go a better route by replacing it with a stock or like a stage one um v uh vr6 clutch so i almost said vr4 <laughs> in the same yeah they went to the single mass flywheel. yeah they got rid of the dual takeaway here dual mass flywheel <laughs> and a little bit you know better torque capable clutch so um the car came to me torn apart had the the clutch was already back in it. The transmission was already back in it, but that was it. No axles, no... Um, the front end was tore off the car. No bumper, no radiator support, no... I mean, it was completely torn apart. 
And so we go through, put it back together, order some parts that are missing, starting out, have to wait quite a while getting those parts in. Um, finally put it back together, fired up first time, and it gushes about a half of a quart of oil in about the first 45 seconds of it running. I forgot about that. <laughs> so we narrowed it down to the turbo feed line into the turbo because when the guy had tore it apart, he decided that he wanted to put a KO4 turbo onto it. And um, I don't know what happened, but he managed to put it on there and not tighten the bolt. It was completely like finger tight. It wasn't even, it was wiggling around inside the banjo fitting. So, in order to even get to that, you have to pull the turbo down off of the exhaust manifold, which is tucked up underneath, like, the cowl area back behind. Yeah, it's a on the back side of the engine. motor, the intake manifolds by the rad. So, it, it was a pain in the butt to reach that. Put it back together, fire it up, and it's still dripping somewhat profusely. So, at this point in time, I'm pulling it back apart because... I just was going to essentially pull it off and redo everything. And I found where um, wedged between the turbo bracket and the block, the um, he must have had a crush washer that fell out from in between the bolt and the banjo fitting. I didn't even know that. And so pulled that turbo back off for the second time, got the bolt out, checked what size banjo or, you know, crush washers I needed for the banjo bolt and uh, finally put it back together again and fired up. Good to go this time. No oil leaks. Top off the cooling system um, because I had to replace the one of the upper radiator hoses and the small, it's a small diameter, but it's a very long hose that runs across the top of the radiator for the turbo after run pump they have their own specific pump that pumps coolant through the turbo after you turn it off shit i forgot those had that um i think it may actually run while the car is running too um i i yeah i remember now because every time i shut mine off yep. it always made a humming that sound whirring sound I, back then i never knew what it was yep. i just took for granted it was okay mm-hmm. Five yeah it runs it for too. like five minutes after you turn yeah. the car off so it's like but I, I had to replace it. that hose, those two hoses, because when they hit the ditch and it broke the radiator support, it um, then shoved the radiator fan into those hoses and chewed through those. Um, so I had to do that. Once we fired it back up, I was letting it run, cycle through, um, get all the air pockets out of the cooling system. Then we finally go to decide to try and move the car, and it won't go into gear. So it's like, man, what the heck is going on? Um, we did all the shifter reset, set the shifter and the cables and the trans all back to the home position as required per VW. Did that probably five, six times, still to no avail. Slave cylinder. Yep, the slave cylinder was leaking internally inside the boot, um, so it wouldn't kind of pump up very well. So we did that, um, 
still wasn't going into gear it, or it was going in very hard you could <laughs> it was it was atrocious you couldn't even put it into gear and try and start it until man it was it was hard even just trying to see if it the transmission would go into gear which some gears it would some it wouldn't and then we were convinced that it might not be throwing out the clutch fork enough so then we got really creative and attempted to shim it using yep. a ten mil socket. Shim, yeah, did a <laughs> did a pretty uh, incorrect way of shimming it. Just well, to we see just if wanted it, to see. Yeah, that. it wasn't going to be a permanent solution, but we wanted to see if it would throw even it out then, a little bit that's longer. That's when we knew we had a very much deeper problem because that didn't even do it. So at this point in time, we think that the transmission is just shot because it won't go into gear even unhooking the shifter cables manually putting it into gear yeah and then firing up the car and it still wouldn't so pull the transmission out which this is the first time that i had the transmission out we pull it (laughs) the first (laughs) (laughs) yeah um pull the transmission out look over everything clutch checks out okay um we wanted to make sure that the throttle bearing was acting the way that it should important note that we didn't separate the clutch at this point right we did not pull the clutch off because i inspected it through the 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 little clutch pressure plate fingers and i saw the orientation of the that center hub and i knew that it was the right direction exactly so i thought you know there was no need to pull the clutch at this point because it was installed correctly so everything looked okay there I think we pulled it apart to check something else, yeah, too. Yeah, and the but... gears were worn in the trans when you when you separated the case. That but... was the second time. Oh, or yeah. Or was it? I think we pulled it out once, then pulled it back out again. Yeah. Yeah, because we ended up doing a replacement trans on it. Or, yeah, it's I, I did pull it apart it to inspect the gears in the, the trans. Yeah, but we, pulled the, we actually pulled the transmission apart. The reverse gear was pretty well sheared off and the dog teeth on pretty much all the other gears were rounded very bad so yeah, it was pretty hit um oh the one the bracket inside of the transmission too that for the reverse gear was really bent but so yeah it was we were under the assumption that the transmission was just shot that's Which why was it wasn't a good going call anyway gear. yeah it was definitely very 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 past its limit of yeah. <laughs> where yeah it was beyond service for sure um so we did a little bit of research didn't end up going back with a 1.8t trans but the two liter non-turbo trans come to find out is a direct bolt in it's the same exact transmission it's like the o2j i think it was something like that yep that would be right they did had they had different codes of the o2j mm-hmm. based on a 18t uh two liter or a vr6 I so it was just gearing changes gearing changes were different but the o2j for the vr6 had a different bell housing yes but for the 20 and the 18 it is literally a direct swap and go other than the axle cups the yeah axle that's cups. why one at swaps are easy for two o cars right because the aba and the like aeb the aph mm-hmm. they all can interchange yep so in that with that being said we bought the two o trans out of a it was a, um 
I don't know what it was out of. It was already pulled out the junkyard, but it was very clean, so I'm guessing it was very low miles. We swapped the axle cups because the um, bolts that hold the axle onto the cups on the 1.8T are bigger. Other than that, the diameter of the cup, the spline count, all was the same. Just the yeah. bolts were a little bit smaller for the 2.0. So. It wasn't even too bad to do, really. No, swapped those over. Um, ended up putting modal the modal gear 75.90. Um, just got that from ECS when I got the, that was a good choice. The, uh, oh, what did I go up there and get for that? Um, you went up there and you ended up getting the gear oil. Um, you had to go up there and get the, well, oh, you the flywheel get, bolts. Yeah. So the flywheel bolts going to that. But that story. was, yeah, <laughs> that was later after. This is where it gets really good. So after this, now putting the transmission in third time i think well we no we pulled it out pulled the stock one out to look at the clutch oh that's right this would have been a yeah because we bolted that one back put it back in trans went in yep and then i started to pull it while you worked on another car so we put the new transmission (laughs) in this time it somewhat goes into gear a little bit easier do all the shifting and everything. This one you can actually manually shift it out under the hood, start the car in gear, and it will actually, you know, while we had it up on the lift, it, you could start it in gear. So we knew that the transmission this time was good. Yes. But you would push the clutch in. Once you had it in gear, you could actually get it into gear this time, and it made an interesting noise when you had your foot on the brake holding it. If you pushed just the clutch in, it was fine. But if you pushed the clutch in and held the brakes to where the the wheels couldn't spin over anymore, it would make a a grinding, like... Yeah. It was a weird, like, clicking sound, almost like Mm -hmm. a... It was very strange. It was. So, very, very reluctantly, we pulled the transmission for the second time. Um, What we should have done the first time was pull the clutch off and inspect it because i was i wasn't sure what the heck was going on at this point you were like (coughs) super pissed off and you were literally at this point in time was pretty much broken i decided that i was just going to quit working on cars other than my own and you know family and friends cars i gave you a huge fucking pep talk (laughs) right here on this couch and (laughs) i had decided to go back to truck driving (laughs) But <laughs> yeah, it was that bad. It, it was. Um, then we decided to just go out there, inspect it, pull the clutch, um, and come to find out. It was a very immediate, obvious thing. The bolts that they had used for the holding the flywheel on were actually the stock axle bolts. Which would have technically worked if it had a dual mass flywheel. Being a deeper, yes, the deeper flywheel. Yeah, if anybody (coughs) doesn't know, and I don't, to this day, I don't understand this, but when you do the single mass flywheel, you're using a VR6 flywheel. Um, ECS tuning themselves applicates the VR6 flywheel bolts as working for this conversion with the 1AT. So that's the bolt you bought. Those were the ones I said, hey, you need to buy these. And they just didn't work at all. It was entirely different. 
So because they use these axle bolts on a single mass flywheel, the bolts stuck out that much farther. Yeah, the than, head of than the they bolt. Yep. And that right there is where we come into this. <laughs> yep, we ended up going to get those other bolts. They didn't work, so I just sourced some regular um, 12.9 bolts that had a regular um, hex head on them. Just much shallower. Yeah, much shallower head, and they worked beautifully. The clutch disc was hitting the bolts they used. Yep. And so instead of it contacting... It wasn't disengaging from the flywheel yeah. because the bolts, the the crankshaft bolts were engaging with the clutch disc still. <laughs> and to paint a picture for everybody, <coughs> the minute we pulled the clutch, two things were very obvious, like right away. Number one, the rear main seal was shot. That was mm-hmm. another thing you went to get was a rear main yeah, seal. Yeah, I forgot about that too. Oil was on everything. Yeah, the so clutch we, was soaked. We cleaned all of it up, and the first thing you and I said at the same time snoop dog style <laughs> at the same time at the same time <laughs> the flywheel had never met the clutch never ever it like still it still had perfectly machining machined marks, yeah. yeah that clutch had never ever kissed that flywheel so it was once. literally only touching the pressure plate and never the bolts themselves were shiny yep. indicating that the pressure plate had definitely met mm-hmm. you know the flywheel bolts but never the flywheel itself <laughs> yep so it ended up being a very easy fix, and I'm glad we did pull it apart because that rear main seal was fucked anyway. Yep. So very brand badly. new, genuine BMW or BMW. I'm <laughs> working on all these BMWs. Genuine Volkswagen Audi. Put that on there. Everything back together, and it clutch. I've never been so happy to feel a clutch engage like that in my life. <laughs> We definitely do got this. That's the only crappy thing about this phone turning. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to set a timer <laughs> for anybody here. Is I'm using a mechanical dive watch to time the podcast. So we got about forty minutes. Okay. Yeah. Sorry about that, everybody. <laughs> but yeah, went back together, moved excellently. It, if that's a word, it it moved very very well. Yeah, the owner definitely seemed thrilled. I mean, it's a stock boost level, stock, uh, you know, N75 valve for our VW Audi guys. Yep. So, did no, have like no an aftermarket H-N75 diverter valves. Valve. It had the aftermarket diverter. Um, not sure what the spring pressure was that they had in it, but um, had that. About 10 pounds. Had an aftermarket silicone intake that got rid of the factory two piece where. On the KO3, it has, like, a lower elbow that bolts right to the front inlet on the turbo. And then it um, has the the factory rubber boot from that goes up to the intake box to the mass airflow sensor off of that elbow. So, replace that with a one-piece freer-flowing silicone inlet. Then uh, still on the stock exhaust, still on the stock pancake pipe, yep. stock uh, side mount. But now, essentially, what we did with that car by putting a two liter trans in it was for oh, you V eight yeah. guys. Was we took you know our three twenty threes and put a four ten in it exactly. So he said it will roll rubber going into like third. Yeah, he said it in town. It will just annihilate them through third gear, and that's. A KO4 on stock boost levels with essentially gears. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I can tell you, you know, having... Uh, I'm a huge 1AT guy, and obviously I had the Beetle. You did a ton of the work on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a an APH Beetle just like that one. 
and with just a tune um at the time it had a unitronic tune um i'm sorry it started with the revo it went to unitronic for big turbo but it had a revo tune it had the intake still i was still on the stock side mount with the pancake when you did the t-bell mm-hmm. i had an n75 valve and i mean even on 180 gears themselves are fairly short and as you've seen we was doing a rolling second gear burnout with it with just those models oh yeah that car put on for what it was. So, yeah, you know, people listening might be like, ah, no way. Yeah, I can tell you a 1AT Beetle with just a couple of mods is a very, very easy 13-second car. Yeah. They're not hard to make fairly quick. Now, once you get around about 300 wheel, you got to start thinking about bottom end, but that car as it sits if you had the right tires on it and you just put a 75 dollar and 75 valve on it i could drive that to a 13 pass all day <laughs> they're very quick cars i would love to have one for myself again I, we I, had that man, two liter beetle that was just it was so beat when we bought it i think we literally gave like 700 dollars for it but yeah that car was pretty hit we were pretty desperate for a car or a second car at that point in time and it was an auto unfortunately yeah it was an auto because my wife at the time before she became cool if you're listening to this uh, and learn how to drive a, a standard transmission couldn't get one <laughs> How did she uh, learn to drive stick? People enjoy this. What car did she learn with? Uh, She actually learned in a 1990 FCR7. It was... She had no choice. Yep, no (laughs) choice. It was... It wasn't a Turbo 2, but it was a very clean That was one of the nicest ones I've ever seen. Yep. Close in color to the one outside. Yes, yep, very, very similar. That one being in the S5 chassis is the Harbor Blue. It was so beautiful. Where it's very similar to the S4 chassis, Sapphire Blue Metallic. So so she did learn to drive stick. We were on the road. Mm -hmm. She had to have a car to drive, and you're like, uh, you're going to learn. She jumped in the RX-7 and self-taught. And not that... That she didn't know before that because she had practiced in the red eclipse out when we lived on uh sport yeah, yeah. still it'd been a long time i mean she basically got it down in a very low torque car so you know mm-hmm. the odds were not in her favor nope she did very well that car was it was such an easy car to drive it too was. it still had the power steering the ac even worked in it yeah, i mean the car was very nicely it did and it was just you know it i don't think that, that car was uh, between the eclipse and that car those two cars couldn't have been a more perfect choice to learn how to yeah. drive stick in my opinion that car was so nice and now she and in my opinion too on the you know those stock clutches if you've ever driven a stock 2ga eclipse with the damper valve still in it the how the clutch is just so lazy and just yeah. so like you know if you're just driving it around putting it it was so smooth and just like a you know a get around car it wasn't like performance super fast lightning engagement it was and that's kind of how that rx7 clutch was too yeah. so and now she <clears throat> Her very first manual car that she ever bought was, man, going on three years and out. So it drives it every day. Still drives it to this day. Six speed car, yep. turbo, dart, six speed. Yep. 2013 Dodge Dart with the 1.4 turbo. It's been a damn good car. Mm-hmm. I mean, she puts a lot of miles on it. And it, uh, 
that clutch, and that is kind of similar. A trickier, yeah, it, it's but... a little bit quicker than than the Eclipse clutch, a little bit quicker than a stock FC and a clutch, but it's very similar in the way that it releases and the way that you have to kind of rev the car to get yeah. that, you know, to deliver the power because it doesn't have a whole lot of torque. So super easy car to learn to drive stick in is a one AT beetle because they have so much oh, bottom yeah. end torque. Mm -hmm. I used to love, uh, I daily drove my one AT. It, it's when I wrecked my Land Rover, regrettably, I bought that, you know, not long. I bought a 5,000 turbo quattro, then essentially sold that to go get because my Beetle was a fairly new car back then, and yeah, I was daily driving it basically to Knoxville and back every day Tennessee, and it was the perfect car for stop and go. Um, you could get that car rolling without ever touching the throttle a good five mile an hour just off clutch, almost like a diesel. Mm -hmm. If you can't drive a one eighty Beetle clutch, you, <laughs> you just have no hope. <laughs> and that's one of the that's what, best cars to learn with that one out there i accidentally when i was shutting it off because I, I was parking it in first gear um before i turned the key oh, off i accidentally off like dumped the clutch on it and it oh, didn't even yeah. stall it it just like lurched forward yeah. and yeah it didn't even try to stall it just it wanted to go they have a metric to, <laughs> 180s with a few mods they have a very large amount of torque and if you build them, most of the time, they will make similar torque to horsepower. I mean, they're very proportionate. Mm -hmm. That's exciting. Anybody who's like, hey, you know, I want to learn to drive stick, I recommend a 1AT Beetle. And not only that, they handle really well if you if they do didn't, the things. If they didn't have the torque, they wouldn't be putting them in a, you know, 3,800-pound yeah. sedan. That, that All-wheel drive at that. If I had to rate four-cylinder engines, you know, like the five best of all time, there's no question the 1AT would make my top five list. Mm -hmm. I I love that engine. They're so reliable. Um, not only that, they're just so yet. Yeah, I, I mean, there's complicated parts of it, but the engine itself is fairly easy to work on. Obviously, in the A4s, they're a lot easier where they're longitudinal, mm -hmm. or even the Passats where they were longitudinal, even a front-wheel drive, but... Yeah, I like them, man. Uh, when that Beetle first came here, it made me depressed because I am such a Beetle guy in the shape of it. But it by was. the time you was done and you cleaned it out, honestly, mm -hmm. it was a semi-respectable car. It was. Yeah, it went from being... I made fun of it every day, <clears throat> sadly. I've seen cleaner cars in a junkyard, like at a U-pull-it. No than, joke. Than what this car came to me. And it left looking pretty decent, honestly. It was... I'd have drove it at the point you had it. The car had broken me. I'm not going to lie. It, yeah, it did. That car made me... And it, like I said, from all that stuff that you listened to, it wasn't anything that was my fault in the end. It was just that it was a very series of unfortunate events because this guy got it off of a family member at that and this family member didn't even... Just know. hacked it together. Yeah, they just... And not only that, everything was... He swore up and down that it was good to go. Just needed to finish putting back it together. It wasn't even close. And it wasn't. It was It was horrendous. Honestly, having that pep talk that night was just what it took. Mm -hmm. I mean, we just drug our asses out there, even though neither of us wanted it to look so at it It was so cold. <laughs> yeah. But the minute we had the trains out, which... You know, it only took about 20 minutes, basically, from where I had had it, and 
you know, as soon as we pulled that clutch, it was like the biggest sigh of relief ever. It's like, here we go. You know, this is an That's easy fix from here. Yep. And it was like the next day you had it driving. Yep. I left that Sunday, Monday, you know, texted me and said, I just moved in on its own power for the first time. So yeah, that I, there's a takeaway to the story. Anybody who has a project or maybe they are doing side work, even though it might suck, you know, double and triple check everything you've went through. There's probably something really dumb that's causing these issues. Mm-hmm. And that's what we, you know, boiled it down to when we had the pep talk was it just had to be something simple. And sure enough, the fact was. that bolt heads were too tall. Yeah, that three millimeters was enough mm-hmm. to really just fuck everything up. And yeah, yeah I mean... Ended up, thank God, being an easy fix. The car's out of your hair, and they're actually driving it currently, which is great because, you know, does put another 180 on the road, which yep. makes me happy. I think he did. He had to put an alternator on it because the alternator, the battery light stayed on. It was Pretty easy killing to the do battery. On that car, yeah, it was fairly easy to get to. Pull that upper charge pipe yep. off the throttle body. Maybe even the throttle body if you wanted to go that far. But yeah, and they're drive by wire, so it's yeah. super easy. But, I mean,. That was about it. Got that taken care of, and he yeah, loves it. You saved that car for sure. I mean, honestly, and again, I'm a huge evangelist for the Turbo Beetles, but oh yeah, and the shape it was in, I was like, honestly, pull the engine, jump the rest <laughs> of it, and put this engine into a clean one. Yep. But honestly, if somebody did a paint job to that car and mm-hmm. just, you know, Went to the junkyard, got two new front seats because the backs were perfect. Yeah, the back seat was perfect. I mean, it was a factory... Leather car. Leather heated just, seat Just car. like mine. Mine had the yeah. heated leather. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, you know, I had mine hard to, you know, swallow, but I would have had mine 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I had it when it was only about seven years old, and it only had 50,000 miles when I bought it. So it was perfect. It was like literally buying a good CPO car. So seeing that in that shape, I guess, almost was depressing because, like, I'm that yeah. old now. <laughs> Man, I didn't realize it, but, yeah. Yeah, that I car, had that 12 when, years ago. When we finished that one, that car was 20 years old now. Yeah, and I had it when it was 7 years yeah. old. Mine was an 01, mm-hmm. 01 and a half, This one actually. was a 2000. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of sad. So Just I'm think like, I had my 2002 Audi A4 when it was only 6 years old. Yeah, that was your high school car, mm-hmm. that and the ARC 7. Yep. I had the Beetle the year we basically graduated high school. I love those cars, you know. I did everything I could do with it, you know, modded it slowly until it got really wild. And I enjoyed that thing every day. That was one of my favorite cars to date I've ever owned was that Blue Beetle. And it was just so pretty to look at, you know, with the, the things done. And they really do drive way better than what you would think. Mm-hmm. They're so roomy. Oh, yeah, that's... It's so weird, that big, long dash, and literally, I turned the wipers on. I was like, man, I haven't almost have to, like, shade my eyes to be able to see. It's like looking out over a, yeah. a football field to see where the wipers are, but yeah, Dan it's so weird seeing them so far out there. They look so tiny. When I first bought it, my brother, who probably listened and laughing, he made fun of it for the longest time. Literally, one day, he put an entire large Papa John's pizza on the dash, and the box was not overhanging. Yep. Then he bought a TT, which has the exact same style of dash, literally. <laughs> it's every bit as long yeah. as a TT. Mine even had the chrome TT air vents in it. So, yeah. They do have a big, a huge dash, but what's funny is, you know, I'm six foot one, essentially. Yeah, there's... 
if I slid the front seat all the way back, I could hardly reach the pedals. Mm-hmm. There's just so much room to be had. Yep. And with the turbo suspension, it's so stiff that you could get it around corners at a very alarmingly rate of speed, you know? Like, they, to me, that car did everything really well. Did. Makes me want one. <laughs> I miss mine a great deal. I remember literally with those three mods, me and my brother was out running a lot of people with it. I know he's listening and laughing like a tune and intake and exhaust. I outran a, this kid in a 4.6 Mustang GT. Not a new Edge, but a SN95. I mean, I put a solid five lengths on it. Kid even thumbs up just like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> and... Yeah, I remember you telling me that. Oh, yeah, but literally that kid would fly down Fairview Road every day in Tennessee and just go around people, and my brother hated it. Like, when I was driving the 5,000, I didn't have nothing for him. Literally, I had the Beetle, and he's like, do not let him go around us, <laughs> and he did not. <laughs> I literally dropped in second, gunned it, and then the race was on. We raced down in this huge curvy road in the straights i wasn't really necessarily putting distance on them but every corner i'd put one more length yeah. on them and literally we got to the light in madisonville and he was laughing giving a thumbs up and he never tried to go around us ever again <laughs> put him in his place with a beetle <laughs> at least he was cool he was about a good it. sport yeah. about it oh yeah literally he just kind of gave this look like what's done to that and literally <laughs> intake that anzi exhaust mm-hmm. a ball valve and a tune and uh, it was a laughably fun car. It just still getting 35 to the gallon. It was everything a good car should be. So anybody who, like, sleeps on the 180 Beetles, I'm here to tell you they're just like DSMs. A couple mods, do your maintenance, and they're so rewarding to own. And they're sleepers. DSMs are not sleepers. Everybody knows, and they respect them. That's what you see a beetle with a retractable spoiler. Think twice about it because that's a turbo. That's what even Rich was saying about this car. Now he's like, it's such a little sleeper. (laughs) It is. I I busted a lot of people's asses with a 180 beetle. The only thing ever that I can think of that busted my ass was the DSM. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I was really well built and I was playing with Corvettes and stuff with it and doing real well. And a 2G DSM put me back in my place. By a lot. I mean, he walked me like I was sitting still. Yeah. This goes to show you, though, I mean, there was a lot of people who I'd pop the ball foul and they'd take the bait. You know, I was whipping on SRT4s with it, and everybody always gave the same look, like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> That's why I loved owning it, because it had the element of surprise. Yeah, that was a fantastic car. It's one I kind of wish I could do over and not get frustrated and sell it. Maybe one day. I do enjoy the simplicity of the Euro stuff like that. Just European engineering in general. Some stuff is tough to get to or they use oddball fasteners with your triple squares and your torques and Allen. But yeah, it all... I don't know. To me, it seems much more well-rounded and much better. Yeah, it's... They put much more thought into the engineering process versus, you know, parts of in-cars. Even though I know that, you know, they're notorious for it too. Vehicles share a lot of the same, you know, little bits and pieces. But, I don't know, the quality all in general. Even down to the, you know, the throwaway cars, the Golfs, the Jettas, the Beetles. The Beetles were very well built. Yeah, they were very well built. They really were. 
I mean, I like the Beatles and the TTs. I mean, don't get me wrong, this part sucks, but, like, um, with the turbo being in the back of the engine, it's something I learned is when you go to a larger frame, you run into a, a huge space constraint. Like, I had a GT30 on mine, and we had to actually wrap all the heater core lines with heat wrap because literally, like, it was touching the turbo. And there wasn't much room to go much bigger the than that. Yeah, that's how that one I noticed. It was the heater core lines yes. were very close. Yeah, literally, when we had it done, they're like, you need to wrap these because it's sitting right up against yeah. it. Like, there's not much more. Like, if you wanted to go to, like, a GT35, you'd probably have to re-engineer motor mounts. But I will say it was awesome because, you know, we run into this with DSMs. When you have a big turbo, then it starts to cook the radiator. Well, on a Beetle or a TT, you never run into that because it's in the back of the motor. Your intake manifold, you know, is up by the radiator, so you're not cooking the radiator when you're, you know, running hard boost. And the alternator. A yeah, lot of guys you're have not to cooking the alternator anything. Because, you know. And what's really cool with the turbo being right in front of your knees, basically, in the blow-off valve, it makes the best noises. Remember the forge on mine? Mm-hmm. Literally felt like you were holding the blow-off valve. Yep. And the turbo just spools so loud on I mean, literally, it's it's a really cool experience. All in all, I think, you know, find a decent one for 2500 bucks. Oh, yeah, they're a great entry-level yes. kind of sleeper tuner car. Put about three grand of mods in it, catch up your maintenance, and you could honestly, you could fuck with a lot of people with that. You know, do your KO4 or your Franken Turbo for, you know, the VW guys listening, screaming Franken Turbo. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you could do that and do a good exhaust, do your tune, you know, don't skip your timing belts. That car will always do what you need it to do. Or just, you know, get a turbo S6 speed and you're really oh, in yeah. there because those are stout. Basically, it's an Audi TT and a Beetle. I'm itching for one again. Even, just even though how that, turbo S is it great. was such a weird feeling though because that car defeated me and I didn't want to work on cars in general again. It wasn't, like, I still wanted a Beetle just for the fact of, it was such a weird. I, I don't know how to explain it. Away yeah, it was like every that, it, that car was just cursed in my opinion. It was like but everything that happened. It was you conquered it though. I mean, you yep. got a car with a really fucked up history that was in six million pieces, almost like Bruce's car. That's essentially how yeah. you got it. But mm-hmm. you know, we know DSM so well, right? But, you know, obviously, you'd worked on my Beetle before and put in a lot of labor doing the shit on it, mm-hmm. but. Yeah, I mean, in the end, you got it fixed and saved it from, you know, where I initially thought it should be, the scrapyard. Now, I mean, you could definitely pull up on that RX-7 and whip on it for sure. There's no question. Stock stock to that, he'd walk me. (laughs) To put that in perspective, it's pretty awesome. You know, I can appreciate that. And then, you know, last night, we finally got around to working on, you know, speaking of Bruce, his, his F10, his 535, mm-hmm. you've all heard us talk about. And we kind of had that motivation going, and we put it up in the air, and you already had the subframe lowered down, which was a smart decision because it made things so much easier. Yeah, literally the only thing that what, I did 30 different. minutes, turbo was hung? Yeah, the only <laughs> thing that was different this time versus when we pulled it out and required... 
a lot of force and was just disconnected that control arm I two seen. control arms literally that was it and that allowed that subframe to drop down perfectly the turbo fit in i didn't have to struggle it literally basically just two bolts yep and yeah if we had the turbo in in under half an hour oh yeah then next thing you know i mean obviously we replaced all the o-rings and all the on the lines the wire wheel the lines oil. yeah just to make sure up. all the old coolant, um, not necessarily corrosion, but just crud that had built up around the O-rings on yeah, the block. So upgrade and, the O-ring. Yep. And... yep, definitely made sure to use plenty of um, like PV blaster. Or, I, a few ATF. of them we used. Yeah, ATF to you know lube the ring uh, O-rings up on them, and I learned the hard way on the. Uh, <clears throat> on the N54 and the 335 big turbo car and fighting oil leaks and O-rings that got squished out and didn't seat right. And, but yeah, we're proud here, to say this one has no leaks. Yep. That's what we were very surprised <laughs> just because of, given lucky. the history. But the we did take two, our time. The past two Euro cars that I first fired up yeah. for the first time just gushed oil. <laughs> so now this one we took our time. You did the ball valve, you know, plate um, installation on the, yeah, the, the go the, fast bits. You got the pure turbo with the billet compressor wheel that Bruce sent off basically for mm -hmm. rebuild, rebalance, and it's got the billet wheel. Mounted it back up, and honestly, I mean, there was pain in the ass moments like. These all use, well, from the lines, they use an external torques, so we had to get a little creative. No, remember, we ended up finding out that was wrong. Yeah, we had to use the triple squares. No, they were just a regular torques. Oh, okay, yeah, torques, that's yeah. right. So on the one, because the ball valve is so much bigger now because of the plate, <laughs> um, there was you couldn't get nothing on it. So we actually, well, you masterminded that we should use a 1G DSM, you know, a good old zinc bolt. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, so it has a DSM bolt holding that and the wastegate on. Yep. So we used, we basically eliminated a couple of the complex fasteners and just put, you know, a six-point bolt on it. It was a lot easier to hold it in the socket yes. while you're using the what we call the moon driver, which is about 13 <laughs> extensions stuck together. Yeah, and what I like to call the sloppy cock extension <laughs> yep. because it's an extension that intentionally has slopped to act has a as a swivel, wobble. Yeah. Which is actually genius once I learned this, but, you know, if you're ever doing a, a turbo change on a F10, you know, with an M55, even with the lift, which without a lift, I swear, yeah. I don't think you could do it. We would have been pulling our hair out. I mean, not to say that it couldn't be done, but... It's just you wouldn't want to. I definitely wouldn't want to. And even with the lift, I'd say what? I, I think this is fair. 70% of the fasteners you're putting back in is blind. Mm -hmm. You're doing it by feel only. That or you have to reach really far up into the engine bay I and mean, a lot of it the fasteners are easily seen i guess not so much blind but they're not easily um you can't put your hands on them very easily. yeah you can see them but you just yeah. can't get tools to them it just you got to have a combination of extensions and swivels and you just got to get creative and be patient with it pretty much it's very much i i think a, a two-person job because there's just times you know you have to have somebody holding it on the fastener as you're loosening mm -hmm. or tightening it 
I'd hate to do that as one person, but with two, you know, working in unison, it's really not too too bad. Yeah, two makes it go faster. I, yeah, I definitely say it's doable with one person, but you definitely it's have just more frustrating. You're gonna have twice the time in it, obviously. Yeah, I mean, essentially, we basically started at about ten, and I mean, everything minus you know the charge pipe being a bitch. We had yeah. it all done within about five hours. Mm-hmm. That was thermostat in, all the water lines ran, water pump back in, all the drains done, the wastegate on, which, you know, as we learned on the wastegate, you have to have a vacuum pump to, to reset it. You have to put your seven, you know, the pounds seven of, mercury. of mercury. Yep. Yep. To hold it closed and you got to set your jam nuts. So we still got to do that yet, but yep. We literally just drove it out of the garage and moved it around, and it's running perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, about five hours of work start to finish, and it was good to go. It wasn't that bad at all, honestly. Getting that inlet, you know, for the turbo almost kind of a, a pain. We had to raise and lower the car about six times to get the intake inlet onto the turbo compressor. And doing that and doing the uh, um, thermostat kind of had a combine up and down on top and from the bottom yeah because you got to click your hoses yeah, on there's hoses that hook onto the bottom but it's mounted from the top and there's hoses on the <laughs> yeah. top which i mean it wasn't a it it definitely wasn't a that big of a job to do that but bmws have conveniences because for anybody like you know like hooking some hoses do take clamps um then some have a spring-loaded clamp that's literally a push lock. So what's really nice about the BMWs, most of your charge pipes are this way. Like, basically, there's a race that an O-ring rides in, and when it pushes onto the seat, it will lock itself into place. Mm. So there's never a question of, will this leak? And then, basically, when you take it off, you just put a flat blade in there, and you pop this metal retaining ring up, and it pulls right off. So in some ways, while the car is complicated, it's actually kind of simplistic in that regard. I mean, I, I kind of like that. Like, the coil hoses, all of them but one that go on the thermostat, literally just take uh, those push lock fittings, and they're really mm-hmm. nice. There's just not a question. It has that locating pin. You push it on, you hear the snap, and you know you're good. So some parts of it were fairly easy, and some, you know, like that one hose clamp that goes to the thermostat, that was kind of a pain. Yeah, the one going <laughs> into the radiator. Yeah. Some but, of them were pretty blind, but... But at the same point in time, patience. it has that little locating tab on that bracket that helps you guide it in to know exactly how far it needs to go in, make yeah. sure it's in the... Because it's just a little stubby hose, maybe two and a half inches long. <laughs> yeah, it's not real big, but... But, yeah, I mean, if you're patient and, you know, you don't get fed up with it, it, it wasn't all that bad. You know, I never worked, before his car, I've never really worked on anything that complex aside from older Maseratis, and this is way different than that. And, you know, like you I, say, I felt though, really comfortable have, working on it. Even though they're a complex design compared to a lot of other vehicles, they're still simple in engineering. Yeah. From an engineering standpoint, they're extremely. Um, I want to. I I say straightforward. It like, is. There's not crazy hard clips to unclip. All the clips are nice and easily they undone, are. and there's I don't know. Every, wiring to yeah, there's things. not 
it, there's not an excess of wiring. There's not sensors on every single thing, it seems like. And, you Working know, on it's like a mixed bag of, wow, this is you know simple, and why the fuck did they do this? Yeah, Honestly, it, it it's is. a mixed it's, bag of that. It's, it's interesting, but... I don't know. To me, it's a higher sense of pride almost being yeah. able to work on that where you're like... I like working on it's it. It's not just an... I mean, in a way, they're just a, an average everyday car, but at the same point in time, they're not. So it's like you get a little bit more satisfaction. You feel a sense of achievement you, when you've yeah, done the job. Your justification in figuring out these different ways of doing things and different fasteners and you start to appreciate the engineering that went into it even though it might not seem like it makes sense at first and then it i don't know it's kind of one of those things yeah it's weird but i find it very very oddly satisfying working on these bmws even though some people just absolutely despise looking at them yeah yeah i mean I mean, I'd put your skill level at the very upper end of expert to be completely fair. And mine is definitely in the middle of intermediate. And even I'm comfortable working on it, honestly. Yeah. Once you actually look at them and you 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 take a minute to to digest what's going on and, you know, just understand it and kind of look at things and see how things are laid out, you just start to kind of... Especially like the subframe, literally six Super bolts. Super easy. Yeah, I mean, there's at first, yeah, it looks very complicated. Yeah, there's a lot of belly pains. Yeah, uh, there's plastic ones. You metal have to ones. remove a lot of <laughs> it when you first tear it down. If you, which obviously we're not like BMW certified, we don't have training in you know these certain models. We just jump so, into it. So it's like. The first time tearing it down seems a little tedious and takes a long time, but once you know what you have to pull off, then it's like, all right, well, I know what to do now. It's very simple. It's pretty intuitive. I mean, we're definitely where you're a expert level of wrench on pretty much anything. When it comes to the BMW stuff, I'm an expert level on parts and diagrams because, mm-hmm. you know, that was my life for a long time. And so we were just looking over that 545, yeah. making a list of, you know, the control arms and inspecting the bottom oh, yeah. side to see, because you know the common fail points and what was, you know, being bought and sold i mean i'm super humble but i will say when it comes to bmws you know common things that go wrong and you know can you look up this part number i would definitely say i'm probably one of the more seasoned guys out there you know i could pull up real oem you know matt can you tell me what part fits this with this package every time i can be accurate and granted you know (laughs) I had Bruce order the O-rings, and I was spot on, but I accidentally shorted one. <laughs> um, Which wasn't a big deal. No, there was still easy. one that was very nice. But and... even then, you know, I was spot on on all that, and, you know, I can look at it and say, you know, it needs this, this, and this. It's just, you know, you could jump in and actually do it. So when you put us together, it definitely makes things a lot more simple. A good team, yeah. Yeah, without a doubt, you and I have a pretty damn good idea on what it is we're doing, and... I don't know, man. I like working on them. And, you know, we just, you know, moving on to the other one, we just, we have a really uniquely optioned E60 545 M Sport sitting out there. 
Um, I had a bunch of oil leak. Well, I had a, we figured out, you figured out the major oil leak and it's got a mess, but you know, I was walking around the car and right away I was just noticing things about it. Um, it's an M Sport car that has CCC nav, so it has the iDrive. Um, it's got extended Novella leather, which tells me right away, individual car. I pop the door, the door sills immediately indicate that it's a BMW individual car. And it's just optioned so oddly. It's got the sport seats with the extended M5 style thigh pans, um, heated seats. It's got all that, but oddly, you know, it doesn't have the keyless go like your E90 had. Mm -hmm. But this car's option is so cool. It's got the sport diff. It's got active sway bars front and rear, the hydraulic active suspension. And I don't know. I have appreciation for cars like this. But it's definitely a little neglected. You know, BMW guys listening right away know, you know, the what we like to call the FCAs, you know, the front control arms, they're shot. And on the rear, like on the trailing arms, you know, things are still in pretty solid shape, but starting to get a few cracks here. There's and there, definitely but they some voids. Yeah. The the sway bar bushings front and rear definitely shot, which is act you know, common for the active cars. But you know, if somebody put about twenty five hundred dollars into this thing and did some love to it, it would be an amazing car. That's all it really needs. It needs about 2500 bucks and somebody to address these things. And to me, that's one of the coolest dailies out there. We're the somebodies to address it. However, it, I feel that it's possibly not going to happen, at least anytime yeah. soon. Which is sad, but it did come to me for a major, major oil leak and a misfire. And that, you know... That's priority because this is this person's only vehicle, so that's the the main things right now, which we'll we'll let them know. But unfortunately, like we were saying, you know, Just cost of being around. able to buy the car versus cost of ownership is two very different ball games. So yeah, I mean that's a takeaway on any Euro car. You know, the cost of emission might be relatively low and on E sixties it is, but the cost of ownership's just very different. And to me the not that it's high, but it's not even on cheap. a five thirty with an N fifty two, which anybody knows, you know, you could get the the E sixty five thirty, the early cars with the M fifty four from the E forty six, and to me that's not the one to have. Um, I would want the one with the N52. I just think it is a better engine. Um, they're very reliable. The engine itself, you do the valvetronic solenoid and the electronic water pump, and it's good to go. But that doesn't negate the fact that mechanical reliability is different than car reliability because the control arms are always going to blow bushings. It's That's all BMWs. Rear trailing arms are always going to blow bushings, and you're going to get the nervous rear, and, you know, the cost of brake jobs is higher, and just the cost of fluid services is higher, and those are all things that anybody listening should account for when looking at a car like that. Is it worth it? Absolutely. E60s are phenomenal, and they drive great, and to me, that's one of the best driving mid-sized cars ever built, personally. Granted, like, M5s are exorbitantly expensive, but even then I think it's worth it because I, I can't think of another car that feels like that. 
that's a 200 mile an hour car that's a four-door sedan with a v10 you know <laughs> yeah is it worth doing rod bearings and van else and flywheels yeah if you can afford it it's worth it but it, for me just a good old 545 or a 535 and 54 buy one just know going into it that you know this isn't a, a camry and that it's going to require a lot more attention it's like a really hot girlfriend <laughs> She's nice to have around, but she's going to be needier, you know, than you might expect. <laughs> That's the best way, I think, to equate it right there. But otherwise, though, I mean, it's cool. I'm glad to have it in the garage. It's a very cool car, and I love the way it's optioned. It's a beautiful car, honestly. It just needs some love. It does, and it would absolutely be worth addressing to me. Oh, yeah. I think we're probably coming up on our first segment, just looking at my at my bezel. Yep. So what we're going to do, guys, is we're actually going to cut right here and go into part two right now. They don't show up in the... What's up, everybody? We're rolling into part two right now. So we basically, we were just kind of discussing the, the E60 at the end of part one. And, you know, while we were basically uploading part one we was just talking about the fact that it'd be cool to buy something like that at a lower price point and give it what it deserves and make it a mechanically 100 percent car even you know if it had some flaws because they all have flaws at this point mm -hmm. but i don't know i'm glad that they kind of hit the garage so we can at least advise people that you know this is what you're going to get yourself into if you want that 100 percenter, you know. We need to do that buyer, do like a buyer's guide where if you are buying this BMW from this generation, expect to do this at this price cost. Otherwise, don't get this car because you'll just neglect it and it'll be in even worse condition than when you buy it. Tell you what, that's what I'll end up doing for the site, powershiftmedia.net. I think I'll do a three series buyer's guide. Then one week I'll do a five series. Then I'll do a seven. You know, I definitely know enough to, to write it all up. And I think that'd be a cool thing to have mm -hmm. on the site because BMWs are a bulk of the business right now. Yeah, without a doubt, they are. they're a huge repeat customer. And obviously the BMW enthusiasm, it's huge. BMW groups are super tight knit. That's a very tight knit community. And there's a lot of people who want to get into it and, you know, imagine themselves rolling in an E60, you know, it's a cool car, nice to drive and just don't really know what they're getting into. So, you know, that's a question I've gotten a million times, uh, literally just the other day. Um, a buddy at work was asking, man, these M5s are really cheap. Should I buy one? Well, <laughs> roll of thumb, buy a 2008 or later, and bank on literally getting it home and doing rod bearings. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of people are like, what, really? Even It's only got 60000 Well, it's due for rod bearings. Everybody gives me this weird look. <laughs> Like, well, BMW guys don't like to acknowledge that that's a thing, but I'm here to tell you it is. So, yeah, I'd love to write that guide. That'd be pretty cool. Would. Isn't that the same issue on the S65s? Yeah, the M3 V8s are the same way. Um, earlier cars were definitely more known. Your 08s, 09s, um, 
they definitely they had a revision. BMW has known on the M side from the S54 on to have problems. Um, basically, they just set the tolerance too tight, I think. And then they all M cars, E46s, E39 M5s, your E9X M3, your S85 V10. They went away from it in a minute. You know, I'll explain, but they were running Castrol TWS um, 10W60. And a lot of people don't know that it was the right choice for that tolerance of rod bearing. Um, on like the F10 M5s, uh, you know, your later S63s, they went to like a 5W30. So maybe they learned, but all of your classic, you know, what we like to call the best, the pedigree M cars, anything S54, 65, 85, they all ran that 10W60. And I think it might be a cause of that. Um, as I've learned later in life, it was a big discussion. You know, some people switched weights. But your later ones, like your 08 and later M5s had a better diff. They had a revised rod bearing material. Your M3s went to a revised. But anybody who's looking at, like, maybe buying an M3, even a 2010 or an 11, you know, you might see it for 20 grand. Somebody like VAC charges three to four grand to do rod bearings, and honestly, we could do them a lot cheaper. Mm -hmm. So don't let it scare you away, but honestly, don't go tacking the 8300 RPM, you know, red line on it until you address it. Don't take anybody's word, oh, I did the rod bearings. Without a receipt, don't, don't. Right. If you walk up and somebody has an M3 with, you know, 120,000 miles for 25, automatically detract three grand off for rod bearings and explain why. And if they aren't willing to budge, walk away. That's a good rule of thumb on anything that's an M unless it's E36 and older. They definitely didn't have the same issues. I saw an E90M um, just the beginning of last week. And I think I sent it to you and Bruce. I believe so, yeah. It was uh, what, the Silverstone... Oh, I want to say it was an 08 or 09, and they were only wanting like 13.9 for it. And honestly, it'd be worth it because the thing about the S65 V8 is if you address the rod bearings, they really didn't have any known problems. Like, mm -hmm. they are stupid reliable. And on your E90s, mo almost all of those were six speed cars. Yeah, this Only one was a, a very small portion had the DCT, which I'm here to tell you that for the M3, and I know it's sacrilege, but the DCT is the better choice. But if you ever find a DCT E90, that's like a 5%er. I, th I, I think they built 500 DCT E90s. That's it? Yes. I, They're the, very incredibly rare. This is how rare. old I feel. I remember looking at a black E90 DCT very, very rare at York BMW in Toledo, Ohio. And I very vaguely remember looking at the window sticker and I think it was 88 or 89,000. Yeah, they got really high. Yep. The DCT was a pretty premium option and most E90 buyers did not elect to do it. Most of your E92s, and especially E93s, were DCT. The six-speeds were a little more uncommon on those, and in my opinion, they were mismatched to the engine. Yeah. 
Um, having driven the six-speed E90s, it's a lovely car, but the seven-speed's just better for the car's attitude. And not only that, it's so damn good, you won't miss the third pedal. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's one of the best transmissions ever put into a car, even by today's standards. It was just that good. And they didn't really have known issues. They were very reliable. And places like um, Dotson makes great clutch upgrades for them for guys running superchargers and... All your GTSs had it. Um, your CRT M3 with the cool carbon seats. All of them were your your DCTs. Now on your M5s and your E46 M3s, the SMGs had a lot of problems. <laughs> on the E60 M5, it was all it did, didn't shift as fast as the M3, but it had a harshness that people just loved. Literally, if you put it in D D6 mode, which was your fastest shifts. It's a very amazing experience. It'd actually snap your neck with the shifts. <laughs> it would shift so violently. Oh, man, it was great. <laughs> but unfortunately, they had a lot of issues. <laughs> yeah. If you ever find a, a six-speed M5 or M6, uh, it's definitely worth buying because they're very, very hard to find them, and they command quite a bit of money extra over the SMG cars. I think those are a good buy at any price, 35 and under. And just go through it and get it sorted. Vac says they have a coated rod bearing that stops the problem. And it's Vac. I trust it. Yeah. So if you can get one of 35 and maybe end up 38 in it, honestly, what else are you going to buy that's like that? 200 mile an hour car, 500 horsepower. To me, it's worth the risk. I've told that to Bruce many times. Oh yeah. Like if you can get a six speed, do it. I wouldn't buy the SMG as good as as much as I love it. I, it's too much risk. You're really opening up Pandora's box there. <laughs> BMW didn't figure out transmissions until they went to the double clutch stuff, and then they really hit a home run with it. Even the mile, like the now they rock the eight speed. You know, like he just mm -hmm. got his six series and. The F10 sitting outside. Yep. It's the same eight speed you'll find in a Hellcat. Yep. Same eight speed you'll find in a, you know, a Scat Pack. Same one you'll find in Mercedes cars. It's good. It it's efficient. There's not much else to say. It just works, and it works very well. It does. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's a part of our Euro thing there. You know, anybody looking? Yeah, I'm not as big a, a bigger of a fan of modern BMWs, but they are screwed together pretty well. Just, I prefer, like, the E9X M3s and stuff. I think, you know, everybody kind of laughed. Back back when we were in high school, you could buy an E30 M3 all day for 12, 15 grand. All day. And while you find one now, it might be a very stripped chassis. Mm -hmm. And I do think that the E9X M3, come year 2030 they're going to be the same way because it was the last and it was the only, it was the only V8 M3. Uh, we're not counting the GTR that the homologated five of. <laughs> um, it was the only V8 M3. It was the only one, you know, it was the last one that was naturally aspirated. It was basically 100% of the whole thing. And they're never going to do it again. M-Division already said that bespoke engines are no longer going to be a thing. They're all production-based, just like the S55, just like the S63 is based on the N63. 
So anybody that wants, honestly, aim at its best, buy the M5, buy the M3, and tolerate the maintenance. And you might have a six-figure car someday, truthfully. Buy it, preserve it, enjoy it. Yeah, I all, all the time now see the enthusiast auto groups selling these off-the-wall cars that are... That's what they're known for. Yeah, they just find these individual... They just had a... I don't think it was an E90, but I think it was an E92 or E93. Uh, it was an individual color, one of one, um, M3. And I don't remember exactly what they were asking, but they literally Probably managed to get their hands on a one of one individual BMW M3. And, you know, it was gorgeous. They were able to bring that to market. And that's what they're known for, so... And that's nowadays, like you say, you know, 10 years from now, something like that, you buy that, I wouldn't even know what they were paying, you know, asking for it now, but if you buy that, you're you're reinvesting money, essentially. The guys who went out and bought the individual E92 M3s in Dakar Yellow, Laguna Seca Blue... They are sitting on a gold mine, or my favorite E92 M3, and anybody listening should immediately Google this, Santorini Blue. Um, Those were only, just like Porsche, paint the sample colors. You could not go buy a Santorini Blue M3. You could not buy a Dakar Yellow E92 M3. You could not buy a, um... What's another killer? Yeah, the Santorini, the Dakar, a Techno Violet you couldn't buy. But guys individual them paid a lot. I think it was about 10 grand to get that paint. But I'm going to tell you now, those are the ones that you're going to see at Meekum in about 10, 15 years fetching huge money. The Santorini blue cars, the E92 with the carbon roof, no sunroof, just don't do it. That is one of the most beautiful cars made in this entire decade. <laughs> they were flawless. Or, you know, people listening like, ah, oh, what about the Lime Rock Orange cars? You could individual an M3 in Inferno Orange without being a Lime Rock. But it was individual only. Which brings me to a cool point. The E36s, which aren't necessarily as well loved, but they'll have their time. There was five produced total... And I know this because Enthusiast Auto Group sold one of them when I worked at ECS Tuning, and we all drooled over it. The M345, which was the E36 M3 four-door five-speed. It was the last four-door M3 in the first up until the E90. Um, They did a color called Techno Violet, which was more common on the E36. You could just get that color at the dealership. But only five ever were produced as a four-door, five-speed techno-violet with this interior color called Modena. Hmm. And Modena literally is just like it sounds Italian. It looked exactly like the interior in a 360. It was the same color. They built five total, and one sold at Enthusiast Auto Group back in 2013 for about 150000 Wow. Paul Walker had one of the five. (laughs) Of course he did. And, you know, his lightweight sold for over 200000 just a couple weeks back. And the lightweights, they were super cool, too. Not a lot to be had, but, you know, back in the 90s, that was a car with full carbon fiber center consoles and shit. BMWs have a lot of soul, but 
Yeah, the Technoviolet on Modena E36, that's one everybody should look up. It was one of the prettiest cars of the 90s, I think. Even though they don't get their love, I always lost it after them. Yeah, it's, <clears throat> I don't know, it's one of those things where they're just not, they didn't quite have that panache or that pizzazz where everybody has to have one, but they're oddball enough to where give it you know ten another ten oh, years yeah. they'll they'll come around. Well, we got fucked in America because we got the S fifty and the S fifty two. Now the S fifty two and S fifty were good engines, but the problem was was in Europe all of them had the S fifty, and everybody's like, well, what's the difference? Well, here in America, our S fifty was basically an M fifty that was punched out, you know, two hundred forty horsepower, yada yada. In Europe, they had 321 horsepower because the S50, quite literally, was the predecessor to the S54. They were three liters. Um, they may have been three. They were three twos. Um, they had individual throttle bodies on the Euro S50. Just a Euro S50 seven years ago was about a $7,000 engine. Huh. ITBs, 321 horsepower, quite literally was an S54 for all intents and purposes. And in Europe, they had the M3 Evolution, you know, with the high-rise wing that we all know and love. You know, OG guys know, like Dado, he had it on his car, his Dakar Yellow, Techademics, we all remember it. His was an homage to an Evolution we never had. Didn't um, we see that Dakar Yellow that had that big wing on it? Yes. When we were sitting, when we were driving truck, mm -hmm. it was on a car hauler. Sure did. It looked a lot like, like Dado's old yeah. car, basically. Mm -hmm. But like in Europe, that's why they were so sought after. They had the the Evolution. They had the Euro S50. Those could be had with the SMG gearboxes. You know, it was the first to have that. And over here, you either had the luxury package with the really horrible automatic, or we had a five-speed. But in Europe, they had a six-speed that could literally handle a 1,000 horsepower, had gearing to 200 mile an hour. The, the American ones, you know, people were salty. They were very watered down because the chassis was dynamically perfect. You know, anybody who's driven an E36 M3 knows that it was way ahead of its time in terms of feel. You know, Car and Driver did that really famous, um that write-up. It was the, the best handling car in America and nine others that look like they should be. And it literally was a Dakar yellow M3 sitting next to an NSX, a Ferrari F355, a Toyota Supra, an FDRX7. And literally they praised the M3 that much because it was that much better than the competition. But the engine was a little lackluster, unfortunately. You know, they ran about a 14.3 stock. Euro one, you know, was deep into the thirteens. Yeah. Which was pretty killer back then. You know, it was running with an F three fifty five essentially. Without any of the running costs. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I love them. You know, buy one, cram an S fifty four in it, and you have, in my opinion, one of the greatest cars you could have. You essentially just build a Euro M three. And, you know, if you're capable in the garage, it's something that's very doable. It's one I, I, I'd, I'd like to live that out someday. I love those cars. I'd still like to do that with a like a 318 Ti. <laughs> yeah, throw the S54 mm -hmm. in it. In my opinion, that's 
The S54 and the S30A are the two best BMW engines ever bolted together. The S38 came in the E34 M5, the E28 M5, um, the um, E24 M6. Took me a minute to think of the chassis code, but literally a S38, if you boost it, guys in Sweden have hit a thousand horsepower on that engine more times than I can count on both <laughs> my hands and toes. And the S54 is the same way. Horsepower freaks proved it, you know, that you can do this with this engine. And now, you know, Mike Radowski, a maximum PSI sells, I know it'll sound steep, but he sells a, about a $9,000 bolt on turbo kit for an E46 M3 that is guaranteed on a stock car otherwise to turn a 10.3 or better quarter mile. Wow. So literally, you know, you buy an E46 M3 for 15 Throw another nine, you're at about 21, you have a 10-second turnkey car. <laughs> Pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's really good if you think about it. Yeah, I mean, when you put it into that perspective, it's pretty pretty nifty. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Having all these BMWs around definitely kind of does give me the itch. It does. It's nice to be around the Euros. It's what, I mean, you and I grew up so similar, you know, we both were into DSMs, the JDM stuff, obviously, but we had that common connection that, you know, I loved E36s, you I were really big into B5, the A4s, A4s back then, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I loved TTs back then, but I was huge, I was huge into BMW back then. Mm -hmm. Like, that was my shit, and it still is. You know, I, I loved, like, living the bmw life you know earning my pay with these cars it was fun and i enjoyed it and it's something i'm glad i got to do but i don't know i like all of them you know i've owned my maseratis and you've owned various bmws and audis old and, mercedes yes several old mercedes benzes you know i haven't even went down that rabbit hole <laughs> but you know, i had i had a jag which i loved and the common thing I learned, honestly, is my Euro cars were always quite reliable. I never really had issues out of them. My 5,000s were always drivers. Most of the Euro stuff I own operated better than other things I've owned, which is usually not the way it goes <laughs> for people. Right. Same with you. I mean, you drove your E46 down to Tennessee and back. Mm-hmm. And it did fine. I still want another one. Yeah, I think you need to. <laughs> Yeah, I think you either need to get an E36 318. Which I have my eye on that one still that's kind of, from the what I understand, it's still in probate court because the owner, what had happened is there's a shop that I used to work for and a good friend of mine still works for the shop. I know you're talking about. Um, But the guy had passed away. Um, I think right after the car had went to that shop and now it's in probate court going through everything, you know, with an estate. So I'm still waiting to hear back on how much they're looking to get out of that car because this car... Is it a manual car? It is a manual car. Oh my God. It is a... They didn't have the M Sport, but they had the... Back then it was called M Technic. Yeah, it has that... Whatever that package is, I don't. I don't think it's an M Technic. You had M Tech One, M Tech Two. 
A good way to know on E36 is a really usual and uh, common giveaway is on, they have that belt line molding and goes down the door. It'll yeah. say M on it. That's how this one is. It's, yep. It has so it's, a little M badge I forget in it. the name for the TI. Yeah, it was, it was something different. I'll look it up here real quick. Yeah, like your M-Tech stuff was pretty easy to point out. But what's cool about the 318 TI is that all your E36s, um, they had a very different suspension than the E30s, right? But they didn't. <laughs> the front suspension on a 318 Ti, and this is why us enthusiasts really like these cars, the front is the same as any normal E36, but the rear isn't. Um, on the E36s, it's a fully independent rear suspension. It's just an M Sport package. On the Ti's, they use the rear trailing arm suspension that the E30 had in the Z3. So instead of there being your individual control arms in the rear, you have basically four points in this trailing arm, and some people argue it's much more rigid, and it is. I mean, you drive an E30 with some suspension mods, it is exceptionally rigid, and that's why they're so renowned in road racing. So you get that E36 front geometry with that tendency to oversteer rear, which I like a lot. The, you can drift the shit out of an E30, <laughs> and it's very, very like predictable. So you get that, and it's lighter. What I like to do, what I would like to do, and it's like the best-kept secret, is you take the M52B28 from the E36. And in terms of engines of its day, um, you can Google card counter BMW 328. There's a very famous built thread. He had 900 rear-wheel horsepower on the stock internals. Wow. So that engine is very 2J-like. Super easy to tune. I believe Nick G, shout out to him, is still tuning them. Or Mike Radowski definitely does. Super tunable, crazy amount of torque. Put your M50 intake manifold on it. There's nothing else you need to do to that engine. Leave it go. Slap a massive turbo on it. Compression dropping head gasket and head studs. It's ready to, it's ready to roll. You can make any power level you want out of that thing. And you could do it really cheap, actually. I would almost say it's the 4G63 of the BMW world. <laughs> and the engines could be had for 500 bucks. Wow. Mm-hmm. Put that into that 318, and now you have... You oh, got, yeah. Ditch the M44, or maybe the M42, depending on how early it is. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, this one, I think, was a later one, like a 98 or a 99. You always know by the steering wheel. It'll have the E46-looking steering wheel in it. I can't remember. Probably exactly. has the M44, which is a good reliable engine, but they had a timing belt versus a chain. Yeah, I think this one was a timing belt. Engine. Yeah, all your M44s were. So you yank that slab out of there. You put the 328 engine in, which is because it's an OBD2 car, it's a very easy, straightforward thing to do. And yeah, you. you then you have, you know, the best of all the worlds, a lighter car with that really awesome rear suspension. Uh, that'd be a, that'd be a riot. Even just a drop and swap stock, that thing would haul ass. Oh, yeah. 328 stock were really, they were not far off the M3. Literally, it was like a two-tenths race. Huh. The 328s are so underrated, man. Not only that, it had a little short wheelbase, 318. That thing would be a crazy, rowdy ride. 
a lot of guys put S52s in them, S50s, and, you know, great swaps, but if you ever want to boost one, I'd say avoid the S50. They had really thin cylinder walls. The S52s weren't as known for that, but the M52 is the one you want. Mm -hmm. Or the M50, either way. The M50 is great, too, from the 325, but 28 just had a little better head and all that. Plus, you have the, the, the Van Elf setup, which is really nice. Got all those tools out in the garage to do those. <laughs> Tons of plug-and-play uh, standalones. Haltech sells them. Uh, AEM still sells them. You can tune the Vanos, so it's not a big deal like it used to be. Right. I'm old enough to remember the days of people deleting Vanos because they couldn't tune it. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, now Vanos is a huge benefit. It's great for spooling a bigger turbo. I'd, I'd like to do that swap. I mean, I'd take an E36 328IS. I'd love to have one. Give me mine with the M-Tech pack. The, and what's cool about E36 is, and you can't say this about any further generation of car, well, current ones, you can option them now, but the E36 was the last of those cars that if you had the M-Tech package, they actually had an LSD uh, differentials. Hmm. On all E46s and up, only M's had it. So no further BMW until current ever got LSDs without having that package. Wow. So BMW took it real serious back then. If you right. got an M Sport, you know, an M Tech, you had an LSD, you had a different suspension. It wasn't just the body work. It wasn't just the tricolor stitching. It actually meant something. It's pretty, pretty great. Yeah. Yeah, that car would have an LSD then, so that, that little thing would be very, very lively. <laughs> <laughs> that, and they look great, man. I love them. Always have. I guess to kind of get into other things, you know, something that I dug into while today Nathan was actually working on a, like a newer a 2015 Z71 Silverado. Yesterday, while he was running errands, I, um, you know, I had hinted on the podcast about three weeks ago. I was actually going to detail the inside of the RX-7, and the weather has just been terrible the last three weeks, snowing or raining like every day. So I couldn't have the doors open to do what I needed. Yesterday, I did the first half. I detailed the entire passenger side of the car. Um, it was pretty disgusting. There was a lot of stains in the seats, the carpeting, the headliner was extremely dirty. The sun visors were supposed to be gray, but they were more like olive green. <laughs> um, I dedicated probably about two and a half hours yesterday and knocked out all the passenger side stuff. And it, in my opinion, looked almost new. So today I went back out and seen a couple of the stains in the headliner kind of came slightly back through. As you know, we determined it was... It was a smoker's car. Mm -hmm. So I re-blotted the headliner, spot-treated it. It looks absolutely perfect now. Um, I started on the driver's side, which the seat was far dirtier. Um, the carpeting was pretty darn dirty, and the plastics were looked to be very oxidized. Um, you know, so I jumped on in using, you know, my really good spot-treater, my Amo Shag, and... I just I went through the entire bottle <laughs> to finish the car, hit the seats, used my scrub pad, you know, 
basically scrubbed all the stuff to the surface, used my boar hairbrush to wick it away, and then I used my microfibers to wipe. And um, I'd say the passenger seat, honest to God, is a 10. The passenger carpet and floor mat is definitely a 10. The floor mat looks brand new. The headliner, I give a nine and a half with the visors. On the driver's seat, I'd give a solid eight and a half to nine. There's just a little bit of wear from drivers being in it and, you know, all that. But the carpeting, I'd give a solid nine and a half. The door panels definitely looked oxidized, and I hit them with some all-purpose cleaner. And, I mean, you got to see this part, like, live in action. Um, the damn vinyl and plastics were so dry in the car that I just kept doing layers of ammo lather, which is the protectant. Like, cleans and protects, has a UV inhibitor. I'd be putting layers on it, and it would just literally be getting sank into that material. Um, on the door panels, it took no less than seven layers till I actually had a shiny texture on them to where it was no longer just permeating into the door. So it took about seven layers to do all of that. I did all the panel plastics in the rear, minus the things that still need mounting from you doing the fuel pump. And yeah, I mean, the shift booth, the shift knob, the center console, it's all very, very beautiful. Um, need to re-dye the ash, you know, ashtray lid, get it back to black. Yeah, but. for some reason they do that. Even in my Arc Seven, you know, it's very at this gray point now. in time now, like eleven years ago, it, yeah, it turned like a yellow color. It was weird. I mean, I was able to clean it up quite a bit, but it's just that grayish yellow, you know, like you were saying. But everything else, I mean, I didn't touch the dash because in the garage last night, I detailed that dash that's getting ready to go in, and it looks perfect. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's gorgeous, that dash is. Cleaned all the ducting, went really hard in the paint on it. Everything else I touched in the car, door panels, the plastics, I did all the kick panels, the door sills, didn't touch the glass, didn't even start on any of that. I, as that car sits, before we reassemble and assess the rear plastics, all the rest of them, I give the car interior-wise, I give it a solid nine. It's um, very, very complete, very nice. Yeah, I mean, I, I walked you out yesterday. I was, like, so excited as soon as Nate pulled back <laughs> in from selling this engine. I'm like, dude, come out to the RX-7. And right away, you're like, holy shit, that looks very different. Mm -hmm. Did. I, you know, you did could some tell, 50, like, 50 shots. Yeah. I'll be doing a write-up on powershiftmedia.net so everybody can actually follow along and see it, but I just did all the pictures of the complete car. I even hit the door seals with um, the ammo mud tire shine. Literally all the weather stripping and door seals within the door and the door facing, it looks brand new. So, yeah, I mean, the car had a very, very... I went through about eight microfibers... My boar hairbrush looks like it's been through hell, and my scrub pads are black. I vacuumed everything, shop vac you know, just, it took a lot of repetition of doing it over and over, but mm -hmm. um, the car looks like it went back to about 1992. <laughs> it looks really nice now. So, paint's coming up. That's another thing I was excited to announce, that uh, I'd say by the middle of March, the car will be wearing all new paint. Um, I'm going to be ordering tires for it. I'm going to be ordering the exhaust piping. 
So I'm hoping by the end of March, the exhaust will be fabbed up, bolted on. It'll have a front mount intercooler. I'm going with the Gretti V, uh, v spec. Um, it's going to have a new coil rad radiator and electric fan conversion. Um, it'll have brand new paint, new Dunlop DZ-102 tires, Hawk pads, new brake lines, the braided ones. Uh, it'll be ready to drive at towards the end of April when the weather's good. So we're well on our way to having a really nice driver. I'm excited to get it painted. Yeah, me too. I mean, the paint's very rough on the car. Um, I will throw pictures in the article. You have that one picture I really love of it where you had it out front after its first good wash. Mm -hmm. It looks pretty decent in that one, but I'll admit in person, you know, it's very underwhelming on the exterior because of the paint. Even like my daughter's like, I like it, but it the paint looks really bad, Dad. And I'm like, yeah, it does. But it sat for 17 years. That happens. <laughs> but, yeah, Nathan's uh, definitely, we're going to run good paint. We're going to run very high-end clear coat so we can buff it to a brilliant shine. Uh, before it ever leaves the garage, it's going to get ceramic coated, waxed, sealed. Um, I fully intend to take it to Radwood this year. I want to get a lot of pictures of it up there. But, you know, kind of like a, from my end of project update, everything's going well. Um, I'm unbelievably motivated after doing the interior. You know, I'm really starting to see just how nice this car has survived. Unfortunately, um, the clutch master cylinder is checked out. I went to push the clutch and it just never came back. Mm -hmm. So uh, I can get a, a new um, Nippon Denso one for like 35 bucks. I did order it. Um, order the stuff to do a good engine oil change. So now that the interior is done, when I go to delete the fan clutch to get ready to do the inner core, I do fully intend to detail the engine bay, assess what's going on in there, and then, you know, do the paint. And I think the car overall at that point should be about a nine, honestly. Oh, yeah. It's never going to be a concourse car. I don't care if it is. But I want it to be a Radwood-worthy driver, and I think we can get an eight and a half to nine out of it without going too nuts. You know, I'm not going to obsess that much. At the end of the day, it's going to end up with rock chips. It's just the way it is. It's going to be a driver, a well-loved driver. But but like you said, you plan on doing the clear bra stuff. Yeah, I fully intend after paint to take it up to Columbus, Ohio, get PPF done on the front fenders. Um. It's going to have the REMMEA bumper, so get that done, um, you know, the front part of the hood, and then around the rear quarters, you know, where it's going to be kicking up rocks. Speaking of. So that's, that's the just plan. scrolling through Facebook Marketplace now. <laughs> oh, see, I like the value on that. I'm glad to see that that mm -hmm. high. Um, he's showing me a... 103,000 miles. A Dakar Yellow 95 M3 Coupe. Um, all 95s were Coupes. All 95s, fun fact, were S50 cars. It was the only year of the S50 car. Only 95s had it. All of them were manuals. You could not get an S50 with an automatic, fun fact. Starting in 96 with the S52, mm -hmm. the the automatic was an option. This one says this 22 is grand. a 1994 BMW M3 Euro Jap spec. 
with the car yellow paint and black leather interior. Is that has the one the, for 22? Has the S50 B30 spec in Yeah, so it is a 3-liter. Okay, so yeah, that's the Euro S50 I was just going on about. Comes with a clean Ohio title, so it's an imported. Yeah, that's actually really cheap for twenty two grand. That's the Euro S50. That's 321 horsepower. If I'm not mistaken, that should have a 6-speed. Wow. Trans. Unbelievable. Oops. 22 grand, man. That's honestly a steal. That engine alone's worth about a third of that. Uh, more than a third of that. <laughs> That'll have your ITBs. That's that's amazing. Yeah, that's just kind of an update for me. That's, you know, what's going on with it. Um, guess that's about it. Just... Fixing little things that pop up like the clutch master, you know, not a big deal. I wanted to bleed the clutch anyway and put new fluid in it. And um, I seen Atkins sells a braided clutch line. So I guess now I have a very good excuse to replace it. So that's it. You know, look for an article. I'll probably, I'm going to night shift tomorrow. So I'm going to be up real late (laughs) tonight. I'll probably throw together an article. Y'all want to check it out. I'm super proud of what it looks like inside. Just disregard the dash. The pictures were taken with the interior still wet. So if you're thinking, oh, it's got like dark spots, it's still got some cleaner. But trust me, it's beautiful in person. The dash is still hit. The paint's hit. But disregard. Give it a month. The paint will be beautiful. And the dash will be swapped. Yeah, and the (laughs) dash going in it is a very easy nine and a half. I got it cleaned to a very meticulous level. I start cleaning, I, I'm very LCD about it, so it's it's pretty damn nice. I can't wait to get it in. Yes, not very far off, and it's going to be... I know it's going to... In a way, it's I'm going to regret selling it, but at the same point in time, it's going to be... I get to see it and fulfill the build still through Matt... Because his taste is so similar to mine. It's like, I never wanted to get rid of it. But the situation is... Like I think we discussed in the last podcast. He's more financially able to bring that car to where it needs to be right now. And it will get loved just as much. So it's like, I still get to live vicariously through helping paint it and put it together. And it's going to be so awesome. I mean, I'm glad to have it. I mean, it's something I've strived to have for so long. You know, like I mentioned on that last podcast, it's been going on a bucket list car for a long time. Yeah, it has. And already I've been showing it a lot of love, you know, just taking the time to do all the things I've just mentioned and, you know, just being as tedious as restoring the door seals and Mm -hmm. just taking extreme time to work with what I already have, you know, not focusing on this, this, and this. It's like what on this car is very savable and what needs to be replaced. So, you know, I still got to go through. I want to replace uh, Mishimoto does make radiator hoses. Good deal. But unfortunately, they don't make anything else unless you have an LS swap, <laughs> which that car, I'd burn it to the ground before that ever happened. So... I'm going to do the rad hoses, replace every heater hose I can get my hand on, and 
do all the vacuum lines. I, I'd like under the hood to look really good. I plan to degrease everything I can get my hands on, bring it to that level, you know, so when I do take it to Radwood, it's like, oh man, this thing is super well preserved and nobody would ever even know it sat for 17 years. <laughs> You'll have to find you yeah, like a 90s era set of wheels to put on it just for Radwood. Yeah, for now, it probably will roll on the stock <laughs> fan wheels, which I plan to basically refurbish yeah. them. I want to really clean them up, Deep degrease clean. them, maybe shoot a fresh coat of clear on them, and just, you know, clean them up the best I can. I, I actually like the stock wheel. It looks pretty yeah, good on it. I like them. I just know that as soon as it gets the wider fender flare, or not fender flares, but the wider side skirt and yeah. the more aggressive lower front bumper that it's going to beg for those the wheels on it. Yeah, oh yeah, it's going to a set of Volksy 28Ns, which is exactly what you, mm-hmm. you know had in mind for it, and I'm like, oh yeah, those make all the sense, so... Probably looking to do about a 17 by 9.5 in the rear. I'd love to tuck a 255 in the rear. Probably like a 255, 45, 17. Probably about a 235, 45, or 50, 17 for that meaty look. You know, probably like a 17 by 8.5 in the front. So it's kind of a real mean, you know, rake or mean stance. Um, Yeah, you know, that's another thing. I'm going to be getting all the diff mounts for it, all the poly mm-hmm. stuff and... I'm focused on improving it while also maintaining that reliability. I'm not trying to go make a hundred horse with it right now. You know, I, I'd say by like June, I'll probably about 300 horse and that's where it's going to ride. Do we rejuvenate the engine? There's nothing wrong with it. Just, you know, getting the rotors machine for the bigger apex seal and making sure when I do push that 450, it's going to be a nice, reliable type of car. I'm not focused on a number or going this fast, just enjoying what's there. Mm-hmm. This year, it'll you know be a very quick, fun car. I'm focused on making it look really restored. My, restor- my mind's on restoration and maintenance, you know, knowing that diff mounts are going to be old and, you know, solidifying the drive line. Not necessarily wondering about all doing it the way that it should be done. Unlike people buying that car, throwing a Holman on it, yeah, exactly. Stance it out and go drift tax the shit out of it, like probably nine times out of ten would. Yeah, which I'm not ever gonna let happen. You know, I'm thinking about how can I preserve this diff. I'm already ready to do a fluid service. How can I keep everything tight and together? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not about running 20 pounds on this thing. It's about running about 10 pounds and just enjoying the feeling it's going to give me. At 250 horsepower, that's still a very quick little car. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't need much more. You know, I want to see how the trans is going to take it, get a better clutch and flywheel in it. And I don't know. The outright speed, I don't really care about. I care about repeatability. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How, you know, can I jump in this? Can I drive it to Dayton and back and just enjoy cruising in it? You know, it'll get it bridge ported eventually. It'll get all this stuff eventually. For now, it's like coilovers, solid mounting things that need it, rejuvenating bushings and ball joints, getting the manual steering conversion done on it, the things that give the feel. Because I'm a feel person. I like the feel. And I know, you know, having driven some of years in the past, I love the way they feel. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, I just... They're very interesting the way that they deliver the power for sure. Oh, I love it. It's just, it's almost like a BMW M car. It's, you have to work for the power, which that's my kind of power delivery. I like the turbo leg feel of 80s cars. That's why I jump in so many of these newer cars. And don't get me wrong, they're all fast, but they kind of lack that emotional connection, you know, like jumping in an Audi 5000 with a Ben Swan chip, and it's like nothing, nothing, boom, <laughs> there it is. Or, you know, the RX-7 were, and then the spool, the turbo, and then that shove. You know, just like Evos, DSMs, they, I like that feeling. Or, mm-hmm. you know, an E46 M3, below four grand, that car has no balls. But above four, it's like, oh, wait a minute. And then from four to, you know, 81, it's it's there. It's living there. And they, yeah, you know, I remember your black car. That's how that thing always felt. Like after 50 mile an hour, that's when that thing woke up. That's when that thing was ready the to... The faster it went, the faster it wanted to go. <laughs> always, yeah. Pull so hard after about 60 or 70. Yeah, I think we've discussed it before. It's such a weird feeling that that car, first through third gear, with it had an aftermarket six-puck clutch. You could sidestep the clutch launch the car on you know a a prep track it would launch and go first second third would be fine and then you get it into fourth gear and it starts slipping the clutch (laughs) rotaries are so weird (laughs) yeah it was it was just in that perfect sweet spot where it was making that power and it was delivering it on that gear where that that clutch just couldn't handle it. <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm stepping straight to um, Comp makes a really good, it's actually a 522 pound feet clutch. Everybody says the drivability is really good on it. I'm going to a chromoly flywheel. And everybody says that's the one you want. You know, it's it'll hold it. It, it shouldn't slip. But it's like a DSM in third. You know, anybody who knows DSMs, when they garbage trains, it's almost always third. <laughs> Because that's that power gear. Like when you hit third in a DSM, if you hit it right and you have a lot of power, you know, because it, something magical happens. <laughs> that was like, yeah, the black car, you know, going into top of third into fourth, that thing, man, it, it really wanted to put on real hard right there. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to feel that, you know, just through like my perspective and just enjoying it, not caring what quarter mile it has <laughs> right. or what horsepower it's just putting enjoy out. enjoy the street manners of the car. Yeah, you know, and that's another cool thing that actually, I don't know if I even discussed this with you, but, you know, you and I obviously discussed maybe going to do uh, Mid-Ohio in August. They have a high-performance driving class, a two-day that you and I are discussing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bruce actually wants to go nice. to that, too, so could be three of us and we get a better rate because of that Mm -hmm. and what's nice is we could commute there save a good deal of money Mm -hmm. but yeah we live about 40 minutes from mid-ohio racetrack um if you do their two-day you can actually go take your comp license test and i would like to do a lot of hpde with that car that's one of my biggest intentions is this year i want to hit radwood with it do our rally stuff. Yep, that's what I was getting ready to get into next. The rally car is still in full swing. Yeah, exactly. The rally car is absolutely still in full swing, and, you know, I want to do high-performance driving events. Yeah, actually, the rally car, um, you know, perfect segue into that. 
yeah, um, I'd say here in a couple of weeks, um, K-Sport makes a, an actual rally long travel suspension for those, and we're going to be obtaining a set of those. So it's going to have a bona fide true long travel rally suspension. Uh, it's going to be getting its, you know, Hawk uh, track specific brake pads. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we're getting there, man. Yeah, pretty much we're at the our biggest point right now is essentially you buying the RX-7 off of me in the up and coming payment is going to buy my seat, my um, like driver suit, helmet, gloves, anything that I need and help towards getting the cage and everything in the car as well. So, I mean, it's, it's coming up pretty soon. I know I'm excited. I've been, I literally have a little list of parts to knock off, you know, the, the coilovers, um, you know, getting my suit, my helmet, my Hans device, my seat. I mean, we have so much of the stuff already and we've gotten so much done on it. Mm -hmm. It's like once we have these items and we get the cage homologated, like we're ready to go, you know, we just got to get a set of tires and we're ready to go compete in our first race, which is going to be a great deal of fun, no matter the outcome. You exactly. Know? Just because it's going to be such a learning curve. Keep the rubber on the, <laughs> if we keep the rubber on the ground and yep. complete it, to me, that's a huge victory it no is. matter what. Yep. Just saying we completed a stage rally, the car made it, and nothing, you know, catastrophic happened. No matter what, your first time in any professional racing setting, that's huge. It is. Just completing is its own whole <laughs> thing, you know, it's like an achievement. Yep. And then know, after we, you complete one, then the goal's four just to get out of yeah get out of the novice novice and then then move on and actually get more seat time and more experience and start being more competitive to me there's just pride you know to be had saying we built this thing we got it homologated nobody else did this mm -hmm. we did this and you know here's the logbook we've completed five rallies this year with this car we built yep that's huge. That is. It's like this car started out as a street car, turned into this FIA certified thing, and it has, you know, 385 logged FIA race miles. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. To me, that's huge. There's just not many things you can do that top that for me. <laughs> no. And, you know, yeah, I never intend to, like, race mine in any professional setting, just, you know, open track days. But, obviously, the laser, we're looking to actually, like, truly compete with this thing and do the best we can with it and mm -hmm. try to actually win things with it. And there's still people competing now in DSMs. It's not as common of a platform, but I actually reached out to a guy who just competed in the Snowdrift Rally which is awesome. In a 1990 Eagle Talon. And Same year as ours, just an Eagle. Uh-huh. So, I mean, he, you know, wasn't extremely familiar with the car. This is his, that was his second ever stage rally competition. And he completed, the first one was, I believe it's pronounced Ojibwe Rally. And then the, this one is the Snowdrift Rally in Michigan, so... Yeah, and that's a pretty intense one, as the name implies. And that's a, you know, in a DSM, a car that's, you know, 
grown to become notoriously unreliable and he's competing in stage rallies and com- you know completing them so something to be said for that mm-hmm. i mean our car you know from a chassis standpoint essentially starts out as a zero mile car I right mean, tie rods ball joints control arms braking systems all of that is literally brand new mm-hmm. it's gone through nothing's ever seen the road especially with the rally suspension to help, you know, negate those stresses on the chassis. Mm-hmm. I feel like chassis-wise, it's going to be very reliable. We'll find out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as we encounter problems, we'll remedy them. You know, if we do realize that, you know, we're cracking a shock tower. Yeah, chassis flex is becoming prevalent. That's when, you know, the remedy to that, and it sucks, is, you know, taking your grinding wheel and cutting all your seam sealer out and seam welding. You yep. know, if it comes to that, we'll seam weld the car. That's why even, you know, it's like we've already discussed if we do start bending the chassis, we're prepared to put it on a frame rack and then reinforce it where need be. and Seam weld it, yeah. I mean, in Europe, they have that huge advantage, you know. In Europe, you could buy a Ford Fiesta that's in the white, you know, mm-hmm. no seam sealer. And you can seam weld it. And if you have a car that doesn't have seam sealer, at that point, it's just time, you know, just going through and welding every seam. Mm-hmm. And if we realize, you know, the back's good because the roll cage is tied into all these things. But in the front, we're seeing this problem. Straighten it out and you grab your MIG welder and you tack it all together and yep. at that point nothing can give it's all one structure then yep and like we were discussing too the other day where this car once it is FIA legal you can compete in stage rally you could do rally cross you can change Road up the suspension events. and yeah do HPDEs you Auto can crosses. compete in autocross actual road race competition where you could do touring you could do like a we were thinking about doing like an endurance race yeah we've talked about doing like a lemons race or Mm -hmm. like jump car which to me i'd love to pick up like a 2000 corolla s you know and go through it and put you know decent brakes on it Mm -hmm. you know you have a very very constrained budget but you know just like a cheap set of coilovers and gut it all out. You put your cage in it, you know, a homemade intake and exhaust and a header. Sounds outrageously fun. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Literally, you you know, in a 12-hour race, basically, you drive six, I drive six, and, dude, it would be fucking amazing to do this. Or the 24-hour limit, you know. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's easy for driving 12. I'm sure that we could get, you know, me, you... If we, I don't think he would do it, but get Casey to be a driver, you know, just to slip seat the car for a shift. It'd be hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Heck, Casey, my wife, you know. Yeah, why not? Yeah, it's like. That's what I'm saying. It'd be a blast. Yeah. Everybody go do a training class. Yeah, go do the driving. Yeah. You're good to go. If you got your comp license, it opens those doors, which is why it's a huge goal for me personally Mm -hmm. to do a driving event. I want to really hone my skills. And I'd love to have my comp license. Yep. For me, that's huge. And, you know, I know that car. It's a tail-happy car that has tendencies. You know, it's like E30s. And I want to be able to just extract everything out of it I can get. And I know to do that, I, I need to further, just like you'd further your education if you mm-hmm. wanted to learn these things. Further your driving education. Yeah. The best mod you can make is to yourself. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to spend a couple of grand to 
give myself that driver mod. You can never have too much practice. You can never know enough. No, no matter what. Always be teachable. Yeah, no matter what, you're always learning. Even professional race drivers will tell mm-hmm. you that, you know. To me, doing the rally, doing some HPD and autocross, you know, that's another thing. I will, At minimum, I know I will hit one autocross this year. And no matter what happens, I'll go out and have fun. And mm-hmm. that's a memory you'll look back exactly. on. Exactly. Yeah, that's my thing, you know. As I said in the last podcast, I'm a lot less focused on straight line stuff, and now I'm ready to take turns as efficiently as possible. And, yeah, this year's a big one. I know those are things we're both going to be doing a lot of, so it's very exciting stuff, you know. Coming up on that two-hour mark, and everybody should definitely take notice, you know, by listening to this podcast and, Checking out YouTube, I know there's more we want to do. There's just been so much going on. We do yeah, apologize I think once for that. we get a set schedule and a routine down. Yes. Get more of these customer cars out of the way. It's been insanely yeah. heavy. Like when we paint the RX-7 and do the cage and the rally car, like definitely I want these things to be mm-hmm, on YouTube. For sure. So powershiftmedia.net, that's a great place to, you know, keep an eye out for any and all updates and Subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. You know, leave us a rating on iTunes or Google. It helps us out a great deal. Um, I guess with that being said, you know, with your rally cars, your track cars, <laughs> your drag cars, doesn't matter what it is, always modify, maintain, and drive your cars. And that being said, this is Matt. This is Nathan. Telling all you guys to have a great week, and thanks for listening. Appreciate it. Later.